Good evening. You know, about 10 years ago, there was a study done by a scientist at Harvard University that tracked the lives of 7,000 people over a nine-year span. And one of the major findings in this study was that the most isolated people, the people with very few relationships in their life, were three times more likely to die than those who had strong relationships. In fact, people who had strong friendships but bad health habits like obesity, smoking, alcohol abuse, etc., lived significantly longer than the people who had great health habits but lived in isolation. As one person put it, in other words, it is better to eat Twinkies with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. I guess that's one way to look at it. In the creation account that we read of in the book of Genesis, we find that God looked upon all that he created and he deemed it as good. When he created man, he said that it was very good. But there was one aspect about the creation of man that was not good. The fact that he was alone. The very first problem with God's creation was loneliness. And of course, God did something about that problem with creating Eve But that wasn't the only time that God addressed the problem of loneliness. We talked about David and Jonathan this morning, the the covenant friendship that they had. Moses needed Aaron. They certainly needed each other at crucial times in their lives and in the life of Israel. You know, we talk about David again when we talk about Nathan and how he needed him to come and, and point out to him his sin. Why did Jesus call 12 apostles? Remember when John Mark left the work with Paul and he wanted to come back and Paul wasn't too keen on the idea, but who stuck out their neck for John Mark? It was Barnabas, right? Barnabas believed in him. Barnabas and Ananias played a huge role in Saul's life. Saul, who later became Paul, benefited greatly from the friendship of these two men. But then there's the big one. What's the biggest example in Scripture of God doing something about loneliness? The answer is the church. The entire concept of Christianity is based on relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with others. You know, if any new venture seemed to be launching out against all odds, it was certainly the early church. When one considers the obstacles that it had to overcome, it's truly amazing that it ever survived. I mean, for starters, this movement was a very small and despised movement that came from a corner of Palestine. Just 50 days earlier, its founder and leader had been executed as a common criminal. Now these early Christians were supposed to go and tell an unbelieving world that Christ had died and that they should, uh, just should serve Him because He has risen from the dead. Add to all of this the fact that the church's starting point was in Jerusalem, which was the home of Jewish persecution. Wave after wave of persecution was unleashed against the church. At least two of those persecutions were empire-wide and were intended to totally destroy the church because their beliefs were considered what we would call religio prava, which meant that they were illegal and depraved religion. Many early Christians were imprisoned, they were flogged, they were crucified, beheaded, even sawed in half. One would think that that would be enough to put out their fire and to quell their enthusiasm. Yet despite the seemingly grim possibilities of her survival, the church persevered. Despite the fact that there were no elaborate buildings, 
There was no access to social media, no internet. The church was still able to grow. It was still able to succeed and still able to prosper even in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds. You know, many of us have a great deal of history, or a great deal of interest, I should say, in our family history, our roots, our ancestry, our heritage, our family tree. There is a sense of pride in knowing where we came from. My oldest daughter for Christmas got one of those Ancestry.com kits. She couldn't wait to send off her spit and find out who she was related to and how far back her roots go. And you know, as Christians, we share the family name. Through God's Word, we study our roots and we can trace our family history. And we should be proud of that history. We should be proud of our roots. And we should be forever grateful that Christ set up the church and that our first ancestors were willing to do whatever it took to persevere, to continue the family name and keep it from dying out. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. It says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. How did this fledgling movement ever make it? Through an everyday devotion to God and godly living. An everyday commitment to Christ and to one another. And an everyday joy brought about by being a part of something bigger than themselves. Part of something so life-changing and being able to share that with those around them. May I remind you of the words of Jesus that we focused on this morning in John chapter 15. It says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another." To be a friend of Jesus meant to be a friend to others. You see, church isn't just a place you go to. Church isn't something that happens at a building twice a week at an agreed-upon time. The early church devoted themselves to four primary things, to the apostles' teaching, to breaking bread, to prayer, and to fellowship. Church is an investment. It's not just a formal gathering where we put on our best garb and we engage in religious ritual. Church is about one another. All too often, though, we make it about something else. My guess is that that every single one of you has had a bad experience at some point with church or with people in the church. Many people have had an experience that was... uh, less than fulfilling when they came to church. I've heard stories. Maybe you have as well. Maybe you've been involved in, in some of the things where someone comes to church and 
and they get treated uh, in a less than Christ-like manner. Disciples of, of Christ don't always act much like disciples. All too often, people uh, are wounded and they don't find the love and care that they so desperately need. Instead, they find perhaps judgment or criticism or scolding. This happens when Christians take on roles that they have no business of filling. The reason why we have so many people who have been hurt by church, so many people who have left wounded, is because too often Christians take on roles that are not theirs to take on. For instance, here are four jobs that every church member should avoid. The first one is judge. And I do realize John 7 and 24 says that we are to judge with righteous judgment. But too often, we do our judging without righteous judgment. We simply judge motives, which we're not qualified to do. And the reason we're not qualified to do so is because we don't even know why we do what we do. And we're going to determine why someone else does. The Word of God conveys the truth that we are to adhere to. That's the standard that we use to judge if we have to judge. The Bible is our standard of righteousness. It's our spec sheet. Judging others, though, trying to judge motives, reveals a lot about our own selves, our own hearts. So we must be careful about how we measure another individual. We've got to be careful about the standard we use because that standard is going to be used against us. That's Matthew chapter 7, Luke chapter 6. Do we judge according to God's standard or our own? I think we just need to get out of the judging business. If we have to judge, we use righteous judgment. Other than that, we just get out of the business of it. Because you will likely have more joy and a lot less indigestion if you ban yourself from sitting in the judgment seat. A second role that we should never take on is that of critic. Here's the problem with critics and criticism. Criticism is often based in opinion. And opinions are like belly buttons. Everybody's got one and they're all useless. Criticism tends to be highly objective. A prime example would be uh, when I grow out my beard. I grow out my beard and, and many of you are very kind and tell me that you like it. Some of you say it makes me look older. Some of you just flat out tell me you don't like it and that's okay too. I'm glad that, you, that we have the relationship that you think that you can just tell me if you don't like it. As long as you understand I don't care. You know, actually, that's a joke. I do care what you think. But at the end of the day, right, we, 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 we tend to, you know, make judgments or criticisms that, you know, maybe better off just to keep to ourselves. Except for the beard. You should tell me if I look too old. Criticism often stems from pride and or selfishness as well. There are times when criticism is necessary. For instance, if I were to speak blatant untruth from the pulpit, I would expect someone to come up to me and, and lovingly rebuke me for that. Even a slip of the tongue is probably going to get pointed out, and that's okay. I want to make sure that I am following God's will, that I'm preaching His truth. I may not like correction, but I need it sometimes. And there are times when it's necessary to offer correction. But in such cases, there are a few things that we need to remember. Criticize the action, not the person. Correct the person in private. Don't exaggerate. You know, we use words like always and never, and always and never are rarely true, and they only give a person reason to reject what we're saying. We often say things as well like, you know, well, they are saying, or I know some people don't like this. Don't speak in generalities, because typically the truth of the matter is it's a family member or a friend that you heard it from, right? But it makes it sound better if you act like everybody is saying it. 
Stay away from those kind of judgments. Consider your motives. Your motivation should be to help, not to twist a knife. And realize that criticism is not a talent. It's not a spiritual gift. Don't be known as a critic or a discourager. Be known for better things. Along those same lines, another job that we should not want is that of a record keeper. Far too many Christians are keeping score when they should be forgiving. They continually bring their sacrifice of revenge and bitterness and wrath to the altar of unforgiveness. They have devoted their time and their energy and their heart to this despicable God. And you ask why? Well, it's because they just they can't seem to let it go and let the love of God infiltrate their heart. They fail to realize or refuse to see that bitterness is eating them alive. They may feel good about their bitterness, but nobody else wants to be around them. I mean, be honest. Do you want to be around someone who's constantly bitter and wrathful? I don't. And most people don't. Life's too short to be pulled down by someone who wants to wallow in hatred and bitterness. Paul said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. God wants us to remove all bitterness from our hearts, and, and he is watching to see how we handle it. Handling betrayal and bitterness, being able to forgive, will probably test your faith like nothing else will. But being a Christian is not for the faint of heart. Being a Christian is not for the wimp or, or the weakling. You have, you have to have a strong heart, a strong resolve, a strong character in order to be who God wants you to be. Jesus himself guaranteed that life wouldn't be easy, that it wouldn't be fair. The issue is not the fairness of life. The issue is how you handle the unfairness of life. And then the fourth, the fourth role or job that we should not want is that of a discourager. We need more Barnabases in the church. Everyone needs someone who says, I believe in you. Maybe even when no one else does. We all crave a relationship with someone who knows our faults and loves us anyway. In short, we all want encouragement, especially when we're down and out. How many of us have been the beneficiary of someone who said, I believe in you? Someone who at just the right time said just the right thing to build us up. How many of us? have had someone who was there for us when we needed them the most. We all need an individual who can pick us up when we're down. What if the whole church were filled with Barnabases, people who gave us confidence so that we could walk our daily walk with God? You know, many of you send really kind notes and cards in the mail. Many of you send emails that are very kind and loving. And while you send those, what you probably don't know is that I live on those things. I keep all of them. I refer back to them at times. I have a lot of Barnabases in my life that attend church right here at Oldham Lane. And I can't thank you enough for your encouragement, even if your encouragement is to shave my beard. You know, there's a, there's a show that airs on Discovery Channel entitled Dirty Jobs. It's hosted by Mike Rowe. I don't even know if it's still on, but it's kind of a, a documentary series where Mike Rowe follows, you know, people who, who do the jobs that nobody else wants, or maybe even jobs that we didn't even realize how they got done. And these jobs are really disgusting, but somebody's got to do them. That's the whole point of the show is that there are certain jobs that nobody wants, but somebody has to do them. 
The four jobs that I just mentioned, judge, critic, record keeper, and discourager, these are jobs that are dirty jobs, and nobody should want them. Nobody in the church should want them. And so if you find yourself taking on any one of these jobs, give yourself the pink slip immediately. The church needs more friends, not judges, not critics, not statisticians or record keepers. I read a story the other day about a woman who just turned 102. And on her 102nd birthday, a reporter asked her, so what's the best part about being 102? And she said, no more peer pressure. And I thought, well, I guess so. If you outlive all your peers, you don't have any peer pressure. You also don't have any peers, right? Let's talk a moment about what authentic friendship looks like. In a world of, of Facebook friends and Twitter followers, it's easy to gain a distorted view of friendship. So, so let's let the Bible clear it up for us. Here's what Scripture has to say about friendship. First of all, a true friend sharpens. Proverbs 27 and 17 reads, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. True friendship will put an edge on your life. One of the truest tests of any friendship is asking and answering the question, does this person make me better? We all need friends who make us better. Secondly, a true friend not only sharpens, but he also sticks. Proverbs 17 and 17 reads, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. You know, life is kind of like a boat or a ship. Some people get on and off when the ship is sailing rather easily. Some will stay on board as so long as everything is smooth, but let rough seas come and they abandon ship. But a true friend rides it out with you. They're with you all the way. They're not going anywhere. They stick. An authentic friend sharpens and sticks, and he also stabs. Proverbs 27 and 6 states, Faithful are the words of a friend or the wounds of a friend, I should say, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And you think, but I don't want to be stabbed. I've had friends who stabbed me in the back. I hear you, but a true friend will wound you when necessary. The truest friend will confront you when you are not acting as you should. A genuine friend will point out your wrongs and attempt to help you get back on track. A true friend will say, I love you, but I can't keep riding along with you. If you're going to act this way, if you're going to be this way. We all have people in our lives that send our emotional gas gauge all the way to empty. We leave their presence completely and totally drained. Thankfully, these people aren't found within the church. Actually, unfortunately, sometimes they are. There are rude, insensitive, and less than compassionate folks that inhabit the church. There are really two types of people when you get down to it, encouragers and discouragers, right? Encouragers provide warmth to those that they come in contact with. The world is full of individuals who make life cold, but this, the church, should be a place where we find the warmth of true friends. When the coldness of the world leaves us frigid, we come to our church family to find warmth and refuge from the cold. Here's the thing. True friendships are built. They're not like mushrooms that pop up overnight. They are built and established over time. Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So here are five A's that stem from this admonition in John chapter 15. Follow these five A's, and I think it will make you a better friend. The first one is accept. 
Jesus didn't accept the apostles because they were perfect. Far from it. He didn't accept sinners because they were flawless. He accepted them because they needed him. Remember that. Don't don't disfellowship someone that God is fellowshipped. Secondly, acknowledge. Recognize people. Listen to people when they talk to you. Instead of looking down at your phone or looking elsewhere or thinking of something else, truly engage people when they talk to you. Look them in the eye. Let them know that what they are saying is important to you. Let them know that you care about them. People are more than flesh and bones. They are souls. Third is appreciate. Like I said, I get these little notes of encouragement from you folks, and, and it just it, it, it lifts me up, and I hang on to those because it's important for me to know that my church family loves me and appreciates me, even when I'm not at my best. I tell the elders every so often, you know, usually every year they'll give me some sort of raise or stipend to show their appreciation, and, and I tell them always, I, I thank you for the financial blessing, but more than anything, I just thank you that you believe that I can do this job. The fourth thing is affirm. Affirm appreciation for what people do for you. Affirm people for who they are. Jesus affirmed his disciples over and over again. And scripture affirms that though we are sinners, we belong to God. People need affirmation. And finally, assure others. As Paul put it, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Find a way to show empathy. Try to understand what another is going through. Put yourself in their shoes and let them know that they're not going through it alone. You know, growing up, when someone came up to me and asked me, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? My first response was to run. And do you know why? Because that question was usually followed by a pitch about how I could become a member of this questioner's church. Not saying that the one asking the question wasn't sincere, but the question always made me leery. I was skeptical of this religious zealot trying to push their religion on me. But the truth of the matter is, we don't always look at the personal side of things when it comes to Christianity when it comes to discipleship at least not like we should for whatever reason we don't always focus on the relationship we tend to focus on the rules and 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 the mechanics of it we get baptized and then we become part of the frozen chosen you ever heard that term it's a description of Christians who emphasize God's mission of living morally but that's that's about as far as it goes they don't emphasize the relationship side of things my friends What we do is directly tied to who we are. And who we are, our identity is found in Jesus Christ. Our identity defines us. The relationship gives us meaning. And it gives meaning to everything we do. So I want to ask you tonight, the question that I left you with this morning. Let this question resonate in your mind and hearts. Let it guide you throughout this week. Are you a friend of Jesus? Because that's really where this all begins. Being a friend to others starts with being a friend to Jesus. Are you a friend of Jesus? And if so, then let that relationship drive you to be an authentic friend to others. If you're not a friend of Jesus, then why don't you start tonight? And let us help you if we can. Let's let's pray together. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much 
for this day. We thank you so much that, that there is hope, that your son provides the hope that we so desperately need. And we pray, God, that as the church, that we can strive to be friends of Jesus and friends to one another, that we can make it a priority to love you and to love each other and to, to stay far away from those jobs, those roles that we shouldn't be fulfilling. And we just, we're so grateful so grateful for your love and grace and mercy. We're so grateful for this church and the people who make up your body here at Oldham Lane. I, for one, am so thankful for these people. And I, I'm so looking forward to the day that we can be together again. We love you, God, and we thank you. Help us throughout this week and throughout the rest of our lives as we seek to serve you to the best of our ability. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.